0: Hello and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Jeff Majuncalda, CEO of Coursera. I love all of my podcast guests, of course, but speaking to Jeff here really felt to me like a glimpse into the future. The future of learning, yes, but also the future of work and the fascinating ways in which these two intersect. We talk about how higher ed is changing the role of professional certificates and sometimes replacing and other times supplementing higher ed. We talk about how businesses are upending their workforce development by tagging jobs with skills and requiring courses for those skills and then measuring in real time how employees are doing on those. Jeff points out early in the episode that the shift to online learning was massive. Coursera went from 42 million learners pre-pandemic to about 82 million now. But he also talks about an equal revolution when companies went remote and could recruit from anywhere.
1: I look at twin pillars of the post-pandemic world. I think one is online learning, where anyone anywhere has access to great learning opportunities. But I think that remote work means increasingly anyone, anywhere. So long as you have the knowledge and skills, we'll be able to have economic opportunity far more evenly distributed than pre-pandemic because people can work from anywhere. And so I think that's gonna be huge.
0: Coursera is a case in point. It announced early on that it would offer all employees the option of continuing to work remotely. And as a result, the pipeline has gotten so much more diverse. Jeff said that two-thirds of the people that hired in the U.S. last year were not next to an office, and half of them identify as Black, African-American, or Latinx. There's a lot baked into this episode. Like I said, the future of higher ed, the future of workforce development, but also how governments are using online learning to develop their own civil service and also to upskill the unemployed and underemployed. We talk about the edtech market and current valuations, Coursera stock price, and running a mostly remote public company. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Jeff Maggio Calda, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jim.
0: Let's talk a little bit about online learning generally. I'm curious whether you think the pandemic sort of helps the cause or hurt the cause more, because clearly, logistically, everyone got online, so they're better at it. But perception-wise, do we now have a more favorable or a more negative view of online learning, do you think?
1: I think it depends on who we're talking about. If we're talking about parents of young children, I think there's a very unfavorable view of online learning. And frankly, it was a disaster. I mean, young people, in order to develop, mature, learn, they're learning how to be social. And online learning is not a great place to learn how to be social and play with toys and share and resolve issues and, you know, be hugged and kissed by adults. And so it was not at all good for young kids. Uh, I think it's been very difficult for a lot of working parents, especially working moms, because of the stress that puts on them. I think as you get older, especially once you get to adults post-college, where there's not an expectation of a social experience, online learning has been extraordinary. It has given so much opportunity and flexibility for people to learn skills that are just emerging and, and very valuable, and also to do it in a way that fits into their life and is more affordable. So you can do it when you want, you can do it where you want, a very broad selection, very accessible, a lot like Amazon in a way. I mean, you you lose some of that retail shopping experience, but boy, do you get a lot of selection, you get good value and a very predictable delivery. So I'd say for most adults, it has been a really big boost. And especially for adults who can't stop their lives, put it on hold and come to a campus. It's been a, a really big game changer.
0: What changed in your business the most during COVID? And then how are you responding to that now?
1: Coming into 2020, we were growing nicely. We had done a Series E. Uh, We were um, eight years old and things were moving along nicely. The, The business had all the segments that it has today. So it was kind of a pretty mature business. When COVID hit, the first thing that we had to do was to figure out how to operate remotely as a company, just like every other company. But that was a big change. It happened much more smoothly than I would have thought. We didn't know what we were in for, nor did any company. I think the impact of the way people work will be as substantial or maybe more substantial than the way that people learn. I look at twin pillars of the, the post-pandemic world. I think one is online learning, where anyone anywhere has access to the you know, great learning opportunities. But I think that remote work means increasingly anyone anywhere. So long as you have the knowledge and skills, will be able to have economic opportunity far more evenly distributed than pre-pandemic because people can work from anywhere. And so I think that's going to be huge. So at the very beginning, we had to get accustomed to work and we you know, all moved remotely like everybody else. And, and that was a little tricky, but no more tricky than than anybody else. A big part of what happened to us is that some of the courses on Coursera went viral. And as countries locked down, we were literally looking at our dashboards and we could see, oh, looks like Japan just locked down because huge spikes in consumer volume coming to Coursera. We started the year at 47 million registered learners. By the end of 2020, another 30 million had joined. And there's a lot of what we had to do early on, which is make sure the servers kept running. And then I was on TV a lot because everybody was saying, okay, in April of 2020, 1.6 billion students had their schools closed. So 91% of every student in the world had their school closed. And so not all of them, but an awful lot of them went to Coursera. And then that really, really drove our business. So the consumer segment grew dramatically. We have Coursera for Campus, uh, which is a version of Coursera for any college or university in the world. We gave that away for free for seven months just to help schools with this transition as the the closures happened. We went from 30 schools to 4,000 schools in seven months. And then businesses all moved online. So they started training people online. And then government started to workforce development programs that used to be done in person and they had to move online. So it was a, a huge, huge tailwind for the company. And we provided some programs to help.
0: And a big growth area, and albeit from a low base, has been this professional certificates. So let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, this is another piece that has been evolving pretty rapidly. Going into the pandemic, we had two certificates, one from Google, the Google IT Support Certificate, and one from IBM, which is, was a data science certificate. And pre-pandemic, really, it was Google's idea. They started in 2015. They wanted to build a more diverse employee base at Google. And you know, they said, well, why can't we hire a more diverse employee base? And one of the factors that they w- recognized was, well, we require a college degree for almost every position at Google. And that windows a lot of people out because if you don't have a college degree, it's really hard to get a job at Google. So they said, well, what kind of a job do we really need to hire for that doesn't require a college degree? And then another thing that rules out a lot of candidates is prior work experience. So if you don't have a college degree and you don't have prior work experience, it's much harder to get a good paying tech job. And so Google realized that IT support Was a job that they really were trying to fill. They had a lot of openings and it really didn't require a college degree. It didn't require any background in IT support if you had a training program and you could learn all of the skills in a pretty straightforward way. And it turns out in an online way. So they built a a program. It was very successful. They built a much more diverse talent pipeline to get these IT support jobs filled. And they thought, wow, this is really successful. They called us. We built this program on Coursera. We launched it in 2018. It today has over 800,000 people who've done a Google IT support. What we had going into the pandemic was the Google IT support and and IBM data science. They did the same thing, IBM, but with data science. They said there's a lot of entry-level data science positions. There are certain data analyst positions that don't require a college degree or background. And so they put that up. These were very uh, popular. But going into the pandemic, a lot of people started realizing I want to switch jobs. You know, remote jobs did a lot better than frontline jobs. Frontline jobs, a lot of restaurants closed, retail closed, very tough exposure to the virus. So it's hard to do frontline jobs during the pandemic. So now what we see is a lot of people quitting and wanting to change jobs. During the pandemic, we went from two of these entry-level professional certificates to 18 And we're going to be doing a lot more of them. But there's turns out there's a lot of new digital jobs, UX designer, project manager, social media marketer that you can do without a college degree and without a background in the field if you only get access to the online training. And that's a lot of what these entry-level professional certificates are.
0: And you have negotiated to get those accredited. So now if you want to go get a college degree after that, you can get credit for those certificates. Am I right?
1: Yeah, so we started uh, really with the Google IT certificate and we have a Bachelor's of Computer Science on Coursera. It's a fully online computer science degree from University of London. And University of London was, was very progressive. When they launched their computer science degree, they took a look at the Google IT support certificate and said, you know, there's a lot of really good training about computer science in that professional certificate. Hey, Coursera, tell your learners, anyone who's finished that certificate, we will give 12 credits towards this bachelor's degree in computer science on Coursera. We call these degree pathways. And we said, wow, this is really great. You can start by learning the skills to do an entry-level job. Usually it takes about five months to finish this four-course program in IT. We have, like I said, 18 of them now. We have project management. Intuit just did one on bookkeeping. And then we went to the American Council on Education and they do this sort of certification for college credit. And we said, take a look at these certificates And can you do an analysis and make recommendations to colleges and universities in the U.S. that if someone finishes this, a university could give academic credit towards a degree. And so now we have nine of the 18 professional certificates have what's called ACE credit recommendation. ACE stands for the American Council on Education. It doesn't necessarily mean that every college is going to give you credit for it. But it's really a signal from ACE to all the universities and colleges in the U.S. that says, we recommend that you give this many credits for anyone who has finished this professional certificate.
0: Do you see this kind of upending the higher ed institutions saying, this is what you need to do to graduate from us and sort of listening to industry in a way that they've been criticized quite a bit in the past for not doing?
1: It'll be different for different types of universities. I think almost every university, I mean, I was an English major when I went to undergrad. And then my dad said, I won't pay for your degree unless you do something more practical. So I double majored in English and economics. But there was even in the early, I was in 1988, my dad was like, I want you to do something practical. I think that these professional certificates can absolutely be a very nice complement to a college degree program. I mean, certainly for community colleges, where most of the students going there are looking for. a straight path to a decent job, these certificates will be very valuable. If you think about someone at an Ivy League school, a lot of what they're paying for is the prestige, the residential experience, living in a dorm. It probably won't be as much a game changer, but we do see many, many students in liberal arts at Ivy League schools taking these professional certificates because maybe their parents are saying, look, it's great to get a degree in psychology. I'd like you to also know how to do UX design. So you can get a job when you graduate after we paid all this tuition. So I think it really does, I think, change the opportunity set, even for students already going to college.
0: Online degrees have evolved, obviously, quite a bit in the pandemic and in the past decade. What are the current shortcomings still? Again, different for different people. What it has
1: been able to do, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, is you can now get... Really good degrees in computer science, data analytics, public health. And you can get these degrees from the best universities in the world. Like University of Pennsylvania has a master's degree in computers, information technology on Coursera. When you get that degree, if you get in, they obviously have very selective admissions. You get the same professors, same TAs, same grades, same transcript, same diploma. It doesn't say on your LinkedIn, oh, I got a degree on Coursera from Pennsylvania. It just says I got a master's from Penn. And by the way, they have the same degree program on campus. So a lot of what is true is the ability to get very high-quality degrees in high-demand topics from very good universities is now something that's very available. The cost is usually about half of what it would have been if you were on campus. It's far more flexible. You can do it while you're working. So I'd say about 90% of the students who are taking degrees on Coursera are working. So a lot of people think, oh, if I'm working, I can't get a college degree. When I say college, master's degree or bachelor's degree, and, and now you can I think where it doesn't quite match up with the experience that a lot of people are looking for, the biggest area, it obviously does not offer a residential experience. So for students who had planned to kind of move out of home, maybe they don't have a job. And so moving to a dorm and living with friends and seeing professors every day, that's something that's not really very possible. So kind of what you give up, in that residential experience. I mean, you don't give up the professors, you don't give up the university, you don't give up anything else. It's mostly that residential experience. What you give up in the residential experience, you gain generally in flexibility, accessibility, affordability. But you know, there is a trade off there.
0: Everything in life is trade offs, right? And you could argue that the residential experience is so privileged and very special, but also impossible for a lot of people who are working.
1: There's another thing, which is that a lot of residential experiences are not going to go away and online degrees are here to stay. So it's really just an expansion of what's available. There will be on-campus programs. There will also be online programs.
0: There's been this push for a long time to get more high school students in the UK, they call them school leavers to go to college. And I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that the aspiration for many was a four-year college degree. The conversation is changing a lot right now. There are a lot more options. There's online degrees, there's part-time, there's apprenticeships. And I'm curious if you were just standing in front of the world's high school students, would your message be, look at all these options equally? Or would it be, do the four-year degree if you can, but there are these other options?
1: I want to be really practical too. I think, okay, if it were my daughters, or if it were, you know, my nieces or nephews who are now younger and they're thinking about this, I would say, you know, if you can get a college degree, there's a question of price, there's a question of debt, there's there's a question of a lot of things. So there, you know, often there is a big economic cost of that, and sometimes, frankly, for many college degrees, the ROI is not there. It's not worth it to spend that much money to get that credential. I I do think you're you're right on it. It's basically there's a wider selection of opportunity than there has ever been. And I think there's a way that you could sequence it now that's quite a bit different. All three of my daughters, who are now 24, 28, and 30, took a gap year after high school. Now that was because they didn't have to immediately go into the workforce. We said to them, you know what, we will sort of sponsor a year of your life in between high school and college where you can go do things. My middle daughter actually took care of my sister-in-law who had a surgery and, and she has little kids. And so she was sort of a nanny to the kids. And my older daughter, you know, she did different things as well. I think that for, for younger people, you could certainly think about doing the traditional route and going straight to a college degree. But now there are these professional certificates. They are tailor-made to get you the skills without a college degree or prior experience to get a good paying tech job that doesn't require a college degree. And because they're not either or, you could certainly start with an online professional certificate program and you could start it in say data science. If you don't really like that, you could switch to cybersecurity. If you don't really like that, you could say, you know what, I'm gonna try project management. It's not that costly to get into it. It's $49 a month and it usually takes about five months. So it's not very costly. And because you can do it online, you're not making a big commitment about moving and paying a bid tuition. So there's lots of on-ramps to jobs. And then from there, you could certainly get a job or you can then get a college degree. So there's more optionality with these professional certificate on-ramps to either go and grab a job that's a higher paying job in and, and high demand because it's a tech job or get a college degree or, frankly, get a job. And while you're working, get your degree online. That's another path for a lot of people that is far more cost effective. It's it's hard work holding a job and getting a degree at the same time, but there's just a lot more options.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the enterprise business. That is your fastest growing business. That is for businesses, governments, and campuses. So campuses is a piece of that. And that's what we've been talking about. Where within that group are we seeing the fastest growth? What's driving it? And do you measure effectiveness or just registrations for those groups?
1: Coursera for Business, we launched that in 2016, I think. And that is basically helping companies all around the world upskill and reskill their employees. And so we have over 3,000 companies basically license Coursera's courses, the courses on Coursera from universities and industry partners, to upskill, mostly in business technology and data science. Those are the three domains that businesses are really trying to upskill their people in because of AI and cloud computing and cybersecurity and things like that. Coursera for government, we launched a year later. That's two things. It's for public sector employees. Looks a lot like Coursera for business, except instead of a business, it's government employees who need to learn about tech and data science and things like that. And then in the pandemic, uh, we also saw a really big growth in what we call workforce development programs, where government sponsor training programs to help people who are unemployed or underemployed get jobs around the world at the national level we've been doing deals with countries to use online learning from you know, top universities and, and industry to help people get skilled. And then Coursera for Campus, we launched in 2019. We just recognized that, hey, not only should we have a direct channel for individuals and the new ability for businesses to do this and governments do this, but frankly, a lot of universities and colleges are also having trouble keeping up with how fast things are changing. And you talked about Tim Cook. He's often said, you know, universities aren't graduating students who have the skills we're looking for. So colleges are saying, well, how do we make sure our students have the skills that employers are looking for? One of the ways is to integrate Coursera into your curriculum, whether you're a community college in the U.S., or whether you're a university in Morocco, you can grab the 5,000 courses available on Coursera and you can select which courses for which degree programs you want to offer to your on-campus students. And that's Coursera Brook campus. And the fastest growing is probably Coursera for government right now, because lots of governments are looking to get people reskilled. Unemployment is always a major topic for governments. And post-pandemic, there's a lot of unemployment. I mean, in the US, we're bouncing back quickly. That's not the case in every country. And online gives a way for governments to not only reach a lot of people affordably, but another thing about online is that many people who are unemployed don't have good transportation. And so being able to do things without having to go to a place is valuable. And then of course, scale and affordability. So government's really growing the fastest. You asked about measurement. Uh, Clearly we measure how many people are learning on Coursera from from a business or a government or campus. We count learning hours. We see how many people are completing courses, but we also measure and benchmark skills. So in the 5,000 courses on Coursera, there are these assessments. They're like little tests and quizzes as you go through a course, over 500,000 of these assessment questions. And when a learner goes through, we know how they're scoring on every question. And we know how millions, hundreds of millions of people scored before they did that. And so we can compare, how are you performing in machine learning compared to other people? And we can sort of measure your skill level and your skill development.
0: So this is a dream come true for people looking for this kind of data, of which there are many. Do you share this data with researchers, with companies, with people who would kill for 62 million assessments or 500,000 assessments or however many you have?
1: Well, yeah. So a major trend that we're seeing in the enterprise business for 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 business is companies saying, I don't want you just to be a content provider. I want you to be a talent partner. I want you to help me develop my talent and measure it and make sure we're competitive. And one of the neat things about this is you you asked about, you know, who who kind of uses the data. Uh, One way that we provide the data is it's built into the product. So when an administrator in learning and development or someone who runs the data science team at, at a big company, when they use Coursera, they can not only see who's going through courses and which courses are they taking, but we tag all the assessment questions to the skill that it is assessing and the difficulty level. So you get some understanding of proficiency. They can actually see all of their employees and who's got which skills. And then they can actually grab populations of employees. They say, let me take a look at all my software engineers in my Paris office. And let me compare their skill level in database structure to the skill level of software engineers in Europe, generally in database structure. And then we can give a percentile ranking. We can say this population that you're choosing compared to this other benchmark population that you've identified, here's how your team is comparing to that team. And so the admin tools are a big reason why companies hire us is it's not just about the content. They wanna make sure that their people are competitive. Frankly, there's another thing that they're looking for companies, which is what skills should my data engineers be learning? Like what what are the new tools? What are the new concepts that they should be learning? And so this idea of skill identification is key. Other data that we we publish every year, we do what's called the Global Skills Report. This is a pretty good one, I think. We we, we look across all the people in the world who are on Coursera in the previous year. We break them into business technology and data science skills. And then in each one of those, we have five subcategories. And then we rank every country in the world, 108 countries. And we say, okay, the learners in Argentina are this percentile ranking in cybersecurity compared to the learners in 107 other countries. And so every country gets ranked on 15 different skill dimensions. And we do this for every year for 108 countries and all the learners in each country. Now, those are just the learners on Coursera. But turns out, you know, there's almost 100 million learners on Coursera. So it's a pretty big data set.
0: Do you have partnerships with any Russian universities? And what are you doing right now after the invasion of Ukraine?
1: Oh yeah, we do. We had been working with eight Russian universities who have published, you know, hundreds of courses. Also, not just Russian universities, but Russian tech companies like Yandex and, and Mail.ru, mail.ru, uh, and, and a number of others. It is really, really obviously horrible and kind of scary what's happening. I think many people are like, "Wow, this has certainly escalated very quickly and is very serious." And there's a lot of loss of life. What seems to be sort of emerging a, as a as a new strategy to try to avoid really costly military conflict is this idea of non-military coordinated action if you will and so now hundreds of companies all around the world have said we want to send a signal that we don't want to support institutions who are engaged or supporting this conflict that's happening in the Ukraine what coursera has done is we decided we would stop doing business in Russia. So we would stop earning any money from services provided in Russia. We suspended our services to all of the enterprise uh, institutions in, in Russia. Among our Russian partners, both university partners and industry partners, we have delisted their content. So we made it so the content is no longer available on Coursera. Learners in Russia can still take courses on Coursera, but because payment systems have stopped and we've stopped accepting any payments, individual learners in Russia today can take courses, but just the the free audit version, not for pay and not with a certificate. And so that's kind of what our our current status is. And hopefully through many mechanisms, this conflict ends as quickly as possible, Uh, but it's not going well so far.
0: Is the EdTech market
1: overheated? If it is overheated, less so than before. And, and when we talk about overheated, there's different ways we could think about that. We could think about yeah, you know, how much capital is going into EdTech. And then of course, you could talk about valuations and a way to think about how heated a segment is, is to say, well, what's the multiple on revenue? That publicly traded companies in a given sector are getting. When we went public, and there aren't that many public ed tech companies, five to 10, depending on how you classify them. When we went public, multiples for ed tech companies were, you know, in many cases above 10x, sometimes above 15x of revenue, which is a lot. So price to revenue is something like 15 times. That has dropped by more than 50% in the last 12 months. The multiples have really come down. Now ed tech companies are still growing. We grew over 40% last year, our revenues. Uh, we'll do over 500 million in revenues this year. And we guided Wall Street this year to say that we expect to grow revenues more than 30%. In the pandemic 2020, we grew revenues 59%. So really fast growth rates and generally faster growth companies get higher multiples. But what we what we see is uh, ed tech companies are still growing. But the multiples on that growth, like many tech companies and other high-tech companies, have really come down. I don't think it means that the ed tech sector is in trouble. It just means that there's a lot more questions around growth generally in the market. And in this sector, you know, how will it really shape up? But we're you know excited to be helping a lot of people. We're growing quickly and we kind of say that in the long term, stock price will take care of itself.
0: Well, I guess that was the next question. I mean, your stock price has gotten hammered. Chegg really brought everybody down sort of last year, and then Chegg had a pretty good quarter, and then you had a pretty good quarter, and the stock's still not moving. And so are there forces outside of this kind of reevaluation of multiples going on as well? I mean, is there more to the story than that, do you think?
1: my first job out of college was working for a firm called Cornerstone Research. We, we did business litigation. A lot of what we worked on were securities class action lawsuits. And so I did statistical analysis of stock prices to figure out you know, when a stock price drops, often a company gets sued. And then the question is, well, why did the stock drop? What you learn when you work with the experts and do all the statistical analysis is that a lot of the movement of a given company's stock price, any company that's publicly traded, is due to the markets. You know, the markets are going up and down because of what the Fed's doing with interest rates, because of a, a war in Europe, uh, because of an election uh, and, and the expected economic policies that might follow. So the market's kind of going up and down and generally speaking, the are going up and down with it. Separate from that market, sometimes an industry starts going up or down based on the sentiment in that industry. A lot of times you'll see a lot of chip manufacturers go up or down, even if the market's up, the chip manufacturing sector's down, because maybe Intel announced poor earnings, and that might say something about not the overall market, but about all chips. And then you get to the company specific, which is okay, when you take out what part of the of the stock price is moving because of the market, what part of the stock price is moving because of the sector, then what's left over is how much of the stock price is moving because of the company. You know, we see that a lot of the market is not just ed tech, it's high growth companies. A lot of high growth companies, multiples have dropped because of inflation concerns, economic growth concerns, and now military conflict. I think all that is really weighing on growth companies.
0: And you mentioned this earlier, the great resignation, and I'm curious about that from two perspectives. What have you had trouble hiring? Have you lost a lot of people? Everybody has. And then how does that affect your business? Because there's this kind of strange logic where robust job market often means lower ed enrollment. So you help get people ready for jobs and then they leave you (laughs) and you lose their revenue. So what do you see as the relationship between the job market and your universe of users? And then how are you experiencing it personally?
1: when the pandemic struck, and I mentioned we, we all moved to remote like everybody else, we pretty quickly, I'd say within 60 to 90 days, we decided we're never going to require people to come back to the office again. We'll still have offices. You can come to the office if you want to, but you don't have to. There were two major reasons. I guess maybe three. One is we were working quite productively remotely. And we're like, hey, we're getting a lot done. So not clear how much value there's going to be in requiring people to come back in. But the bigger things were, especially, there's a global talent pool. When we can only hire people who live close to our office, we're forfeiting about 99.9%, probably more of all the people in the world. So if you really want to get access to the best talent, don't only go fishing in the talent pool that's right next to your office. Fish in the global talent pool. And so we were like, if we could recruit from anywhere, we could find the best people And we could probably also find a much more diverse range of people who can work for Coursera. And so we thought in terms of talent and in terms of diversity, hiring from the global talent pool would be a big boon. And it has been. Two thirds of the people we've hired in the U.S. in the last year uh, are not next to an office. And half of them identify as black, African-American, Latinx. And so we have really, really expanded because now we're hiring people in Atlanta, we're hiring people in Maine, we're hiring people in Kansas City, we're hiring people all over the country. And that has been fantastic. The third piece of it really is the the defensive piece of saying, if we don't do this, somebody else will, and they will steal our people. And so this is what you are definitely seeing. We made it really clear to our employees early on don't worry about when this pandemic is going to end. I mean, we're, we're not going to force you to come back to the office. If you want to move your family to Boise or to Austin or to Colorado or somewhere else in the world, go ahead. Like you figure out what's best for your family. You can work at Coursera no matter what. And so it gave us a lot of insulation from the uncertainty of the pandemic. And it turns out to have really worked nicely because we didn't know the pandemic was going to be you know, a problem for you know, years and years. And so now we talk about the great resignation. It is not evenly distributed. The people who are quitting their jobs and, and job resignations are at an all time high. They're much more in frontline, lower wage jobs that are not digital. And what it reflects is probably kind of obvious, but now people are doing more surveys, they're getting more data. People are saying, I don't like my career. I don't make very much money. I don't feel like I'm very well respected by customers. It's hard to be a flight attendant. It's hard to be a a service provider at a restaurant. And they're like, I want to have more pay and more flexibility. And I know that there are jobs out there that weren't out there five years ago. There's all these new digital jobs that, 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 that didn't even exist. And I want to get one. Now, this gets to Coursera. So on the one hand, our employees are in those digital jobs and we pay pretty well. And we also offer the flexibility of remote work. So Courserians, as we call ourselves... They have a lot of flexibility, good pay, good job. So we're not seeing as much of an impact. But for a lot of companies who, who have frontline workers, having a very difficult time because people are quitting and they're getting access to these better job opportunities. And companies who are trying to force their employees to come back to the office, a lot of employers saying, I'm not doing it. Maybe if every company said you had to come to an office, but so long as some of them say, I don't need to, and they're willing to hire me. I'm going to quit my job and go work for them. And so so one of the reasons why Coursera actually has done really well is we're picking off people whose companies are trying to say you have to come back and we're saying you don't. And and that flexibility is pretty attractive.
0: I do want to ask one follow-up question on that, which is about productivity. You mentioned that it was very high in the beginning of the pandemic. One thing that we've noticed in a few of the industries we cover and live in is that, There's a little bit of, you know, you've given me a little bit of space. I want some more. Like, I'd like to wake up at 9, not 9.30. And so I'm curious if you're still seeing that level of productivity that you saw early on.
1: We're definitely seeing good productivity. We're also hearing employees say, I'm feeling burnt out. I'm not getting recharged. I'm working really hard. The blending between work and non-work life is really difficult to manage. Plus, obviously, with the pandemic, now with a with war, with schools having been closed again for working parents, it's, it's been really, really stressful. So we're not a lot more special than anybody else, I think, in, in employees saying, I'm stressed out. But I think that what we have been able to see is that the flexibility really does afford people a, an ability to work kind of when they want and how they want. But the way that you run the company has to be a bit different. The way that you manage people has to be far more outcomes based. Like you can't just look over somebody's shoulder all the time. You can't say, anyway, well, when did you get to the office? Maybe there's a way you could look at your, I don't know, data to see like, when does someone log in? But that, I think that would be very, very difficult to do probably also pretty unpopular. So what you have to really say is, look, in this job, these are the results that you have to produce. We call them OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. Every 90 days, the company Coursera puts together our corporate OKRs, and every single person at Coursera puts together your personal objectives and key results. It says, in this 90 days, I'm going to produce these things and make this impact, drive this metric. Once you really hold people accountable for producing results not just performing activities and performing activities at a certain place at a certain time. You say, look, this is the result we need you to produce. Produce it how you want, you know, when you want, where you want. Uh, We don't need to watch you do the work. We just need to make sure that the result is there. And every 90 days, people are checking in to say, I said I was going to produce this result and here's what I was able to produce. So I think the way that you lead has to be different. And there's certain types of collaboration too, Jenny, that I think suffer. Part of it is just the social connectivity to the company. It's easier to feel transactional when you're doing Zoom meetings. And then when it comes to collaboration, bandwidth kind of is a problem and visual thinking is a problem when you're on Zoom. And so in particular, I call it systems design. But when you're trying to design a system with many pieces that integrate with each other, It's hard to do over Zoom. It's great to do in front of a whiteboard in real time with low latency. You can see body language. People get excited. It's all synchronous. That kind of stuff is harder to do. So I think there's certain kinds of collaboration that are harder. And I think there's a social connection which is more easily missing that might result in higher persistent turnover rates for companies who who don't have a strong physical social connection to the work.
0: You saw some interesting uptick in STEM course enrollment among women between 2016 and 2021, share of new registered learners, and even for these professional certificates, at least in the past couple of years, you've seen increases. Do you think these stick? Are these just pandemic inflections or do you think these are secular change?
1: These appear to be secular change. I mean, partly driven by pandemics. Also with respect to professional certificates, during the pandemic, we went from those two professional certificates I mentioned in IT support and data science, which often skew more male, to include social media marketing, project management, UX design, bookkeeping, things that often skew more female. So it, part of it is the selection of professional certificates that we, that we put out there was broader and I think was a bit more appealing to both genders, not just men. Globally, in 2019, in terms of overall enrollments on Coursera during the year 2019, 38% of the course enrollments were by women. In the U.S., it's a lot closer to 50-50. In India, it's more skewed to you know, 35-65. But we saw 38% overall global enrollments from women in 2019. That grew to 45% in 2021. A lot of this is when women often have more family care duties and they have to be at home because the kids are not in school. Turns out you can learn a lot of stuff online even if you have kids at the house. And so again, that flexibility For people who are taking care of others or for people who don't have transportation or working two jobs, a lot of people in the U.S. who are making minimum wage, work multiple jobs, is really hard for them to get access to the time and place to learn. And so we saw that step up. In terms of STEM, as you mentioned, these are science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Enrollments globally went from 31% in 2019 to 37% female enrollments in 2021. And then for these professional certs. It went from 25% in 2019 up to 37% globally in 2021. So we're seeing this increase in almost every country of the world.
0: Do you upskill your own employees on Coursera?
1: Yes, we have a program called SkillUp. And every employee uses SkillUp. We expect people to be you know, always updating their skills. We have something called s- skill sets, which is for each function, we say these are the skills in this function that you need to be learning. Once you define the skills, the course recommendations follow. So yes, we, we absolutely do.
0: For a lot of graduate scheme programs right now, rather than do a series of interviews, you now do online computerized tests and fill out these forms. I'm curious if you think a place like Coursera is going to do prep for this kind of logic management consulting type thinking that is now quite widely used on assessments for jobs.
1: So many jobs require certain types of certifications. We have a lot of certification test prep on Coursera. So there's definitely that. With respect to interview prep, I mean, what people will often complete a course or a professional certificate, and they'll put the credential on LinkedIn in a way they're preparing for the interview by saying, I know this stuff, I can prove it because, look, I've got the certificate from Coursera. But we also have a special kind of product called Coursera Labs. And in these labs, you can build projects. And when the job spec says, you need to know Java, or you need to know our studio, or these these digital skills, a lot of students come onto Coursera. And they build these guided projects on Coursera. And then they show them to the employer. Say, look, I know how to write SQL. Here's a project I built on Coursera. Not just a certificate, but here's the actual project that I built using SQL. And at Coursera, our engineering team uses Coursera Labs like HackerRank, where they build a lab and then any interview candidate has to actually go through this. It's kind of like a live coding test that they have to do in order to get a phone interview with our engineering team. And I can see many, many companies starting to use Coursera to not only say, do you have a certificate that you learn the skills, but show me that you know how to use this tool in order to do the job I need to hire and, and, and fill. And so I think there's a really good future in not only skilling people, but also demonstrating those skills to employers.
0: What keeps you up at night?
1: You know, right now, the, the conflict in Ukraine, you know, we, we thought the world was changing fast before the pandemic. And then you have the absolute dislocation of society globally because of the pandemic with massive disparate impact on people's livelihoods, jobs, of course, health outcomes, hospitals. And now we have a war that has really been waged on a pretty massive scale in Europe with one of the largest superpowers in the world. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot that really keeps me up, but those are the big ones. As it relates to Coursera, you know, we are trying to do the right thing in terms of serving as many learners who need uh, access to education as possible. I'm very proud of the work that we're doing there. We do a lot of nonprofit work with institutions to to help vulnerable populations. We just got a letter from the Ministry of Education in Ukraine. We're going to be offering Coursera for campus available to every university in Ukraine for their students as they relocate to different parts of, of Europe or the world. They'll be able to use the Coursera platform at no cost to continue their studies, even as they're Displaced by this war, so I, you know, I feel good about the work that we're doing. But but man, the ch- the world is changing just so fast, and what our customers need is changing quickly. What our employees need is changing quickly, and so as a leader, you know, there's just a, a lot to think about, and then there's a lot to do. <laughs> it's like you know, assess the situation, develop the strategy, and implement, and then oh my gosh, things change. Reassess the situation, <laughs> readjust your strategy, and implement again. And the velocity. Of that learning and changing and acting loop is going faster and faster. It's exciting, but it's hard work.
0: Three rapid fire
1: questions. What's your favorite book about learning? Well, I'll tell you what my favorite course about learning is, is a course on Coursera called Learning How to Learn. It's, it's from a neurobiologist who says, Here's how your brain works, and here are tips and tricks and hacks to learn effectively. And they go to some basic things make sure you sleep well, make sure that you exercise. And then there's a the whole thing about space interval learning where you you know, you know don't cram the night before things will sink in better if you pace your learning.
0: OK, what's your favorite book not about learning?
1: There's one called The Big Picture by Sean Carroll. He's a, a quantum physicist and it's kind of the most current understanding of how the natural world works from physics to biology, to chemistry, even to human behavior. And so it's pretty awesome.
0: What are you binge watching? And I hope it's a little bit lighter than that. <laughs> Oh, you know, recently i my wife and I've been watching Succession. Oh, wow. Talk about dysfunctional family. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make you feel better about your own family? How, whatever your family is, it's better than that. Yeah,
1: completely. Our family, we, we do a lot less exciting things, but boy, we, I think, have a much more healthy way of relating to each other.
0: Jeff, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.
1: It's been a real pleasure to be here, Jenny. Thanks for chatting.
0: I was struck by a lot of things in this conversation, but two stood out the most. The first is how many more options young people have to pursue education and skills development at a much more accessible price point. Many people, especially in the US, are unaware of what a typical college student looks like today. 40% are over 25, 73% of them are working, and 24% of them find it hard to afford food in college. There's more student debt than credit card debt in the US. I genuinely wish every young person could get a four-year degree, but that does not match any version of reality today creating options and multiple pathways is necessary to really meet the needs of young people. And Jeff maps out what some of those pathways can look like without a lot of the hyperbole I often hear from the ed tech sector. I was also fascinated by his articulation of how workforce development is evolving. It's not surprising that the enterprise part of Coursera's business is growing so fast and the governments, large as they are, are a major source of that growth, not to just train their own workforce, but to train the vast population of under and unemployed citizens. Ditto's skills development at work. His description of using Coursera to prep for a job, post that qualification on LinkedIn, and then use Coursera Lab to create a project to showcase a skill for an employer was fascinating, as was the idea of employers using these dashboards to watch their employees get skills in real time, with data showing how they're doing against a global comparator group or even against the company's own talent pool. I realize this is the world we live in, but I am old enough to feel a bit of awe at the pace of change and how it is accelerating, as well as some exhilaration that more people will have more opportunities to learn and hopefully find meaningful work in every corner of the world. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.